0: I was sitting in a cafe with a friend and we were talking about burnout and I was like saying to him every place that I turn to is like psychologist this and illness that I said wouldn't it be great if somebody could build a center for effective living that brings the dignity of saying you get to live a life though it's hard and there's suffering and pain that's effective because you're being authentic to yourself you're growing and you're doing the best that you can I was so sure that somebody would have had that name in Australia. and so I thought, oh yeah, wouldn't it be great Center for Effective Living? Let's just Google it. <laughs> Nobody had the name and I register it and that became the name that is till today.
1: Welcome to Getting to the Heart of Business brought to you by the Online Co where we believe the best way to help small and medium businesses grow is by putting people first. I'm James Parnwell, and this episode is the first of two that I think every business leader needs to hear. We had the privilege of spending an hour with Valerie Ling. She's a psychologist, entrepreneur, and founder of the Centre for Effective Living, a psychology practice in Sydney. And just to give you a hint at the topic we covered, Valerie is known by the nickname Dr. Burnout. And as usual, my co-host and marketing pro is Jess Cluso. G'day Jess. Hey James. Tell me, do you have a childhood memory of an early start to your career?
2: Oh, I do. I started my entrepreneurial career when I was in... I think I was in Year 4 at primary school. That's about 10? Yeah, 9, 9 10. Or I'm 10? not sure. Yep. Somebody will know. And look, without giving too much away, I feel as though Valerie and I could actually go into business together selling rubbers back to <laughs> school children. <laughs> so what I would do when I was in Year 4 is I would um, acquire... The rubbers, but okay. For Jess, those listening
1: overseas, a rubber is an eraser. <laughs> an
2: eraser, yes. yes. So we, we very have a word for them in Australia.
1: That's not appropriate in other countries.
2: Yeah. So <laughs> I would clean them up, and then I would cut them up. So one rubber would cut down into say five yep. or six pieces, and I'd sell them back to the kids in my class because they had no rubber. I did it really well. I actually did bundles. So you could buy one rubber or eraser, okay. one or one piece of it for five cents. You could get two for 10 cents, or look, I'll do you a deal for 15 cents, I'll give you four. So they basically got their entire rubber back (laughs) for 20 cents, which meant I could then go to the canteen at lunch and buy some snacks. So where were you sourcing them? I was acquiring the rubbers from the people in my class, James. Um, I'm asking you to read through the lines. When you say acquire,
1: (laughs) maybe we leave it at that. I think we can read between the lines. Um, So Valerie was a childhood salesperson. Uh, but today she's best known as an expert in burnout treatment and prevention. And in part two next week, you'll get to hear some of her really practical advice on that topic. But Valerie's also a lifelong entrepreneur, and it goes way back to the age of nine when she started manufacturing and selling erasers in the classroom, just like Jess. <laughs> Fast forward to today, and Valerie heads a very successful organisation built on solid business principles. She's always dreaming up new ways to lift her organisation to new levels. And I think you're gonna gain a lot from her business insights. Welcome to the podcast, Valerie. Thanks for having me. Now, your journey into psychology was a bit of a long-winded one. You didn't
0: land there immediately. Tell us that story. So, I didn't even know what psychology was, to be honest with you. We started, well, I started university at a time when psychology was part of a broad arts education, right? So it was after the HSC, no idea what to do. And I'm like, okay, music is my first love. You know, that's the one thing if you trace through my whole life, music has always been the thing for me. And being somewhat altruistic, I thought music, education, that seems like a really good mix to have. Sure. And so I went off and applied for entry into that degree, but uh, that was not to happen. And so here I am sitting thinking, well, now what, right? And uh, I'm Asian, and Asians tend to think, well, I should go and do something with my ATAR. Well, back then it was your TER. How much did I get? Which course should I get into? And so I applied for a law degree. And to my horror, I got in. (laughs) And it was because of the law degree, I had to do a double degree. That's how they did it. In the arts degree, I went, well, what am I going to do in the arts, arts law? I'll do psychology. And you know what's the funny thing? I remember enrolling for it and the person said to me, this is a really odd combination. And I thought, that's strange. To me, it makes perfect sense. There's the law that is to uphold, you know, the rights and, uh, you know, justice. And then there's understanding people. So I went and did that and I cried for a year of law. I hated it. That bad. Yeah. So in my arts degree, I experimented with a few things and eventually discovered that, oh, the psychology thing is not bad. I think I'll stick with it.
1: Okay. So then you completed your degree in psychology.
0: I did. Then I met a boy uh, who was from overseas in Singapore and I started dating in my first year. It was very inconvenient because then I had (laughs) to think, well, if this relationship is going to go anywhere. I may have to move or he has to move so it turned out that I moved and I went to Singapore and I uh, practiced as a psychologist and had a really rough time getting that going and then I came back to Australia retrained and uh, became a clinical psychologist instead of what I was originally going to be which was an organizational psychologist
1: okay you then started a business but you're kind of entrepreneurial spark started quite early in your life tell us how old were you when you kind of first felt that
0: probably nine yeah I was really really young my dad would teach us how to keep bank accounts like in an exercise book debit credit (laughs) so I'm nine years old and I'm in Malaysia so it's a simple exercise of here's how you learn how to have a shop you make some boxes and things and then you make paper money and then you guys play pretend shop and I just thought it was a great idea to actually sell some of my stationery <laughs> uh, with real money right? right so if I took one of my erasers and I cleaned it up nicely and I kind of cut the edges off I could actually get three little erasers right and like why go paper money let's just do real money Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so um That doesn't really get looked upon very well. Right, teachers are,
1: teachers. are seeing trade go on in the classroom, yeah. and and they were discouraging of it.
0: Yeah. Okay you know i'm 13 and i'm having music lessons and i think to myself it's a great idea to go and put out some flyers around the neighborhood and tell kids i can teach them okay i like, no no cred no um actual <laughs> like i'm 13 but yeah i go and get myself a bunch of students and they come home and they and i think my parents were supportive of that okay but when you kind of have to become an adult it's like well that was nice but now you've got to go and do something real and proper right this is like the surest securest way to get money yes. and to earn an income I call it linear thinking so go into the right course in the yeah. right university get the right job so you can move into the right suburb buy the right house yeah. and buy the right car blah blah blah, blah. yeah provide
1: for your kids have a nice <laughs> retirement yeah it, and in your mind something dies inside going oh that's boring <laughs> well
0: <laughs> uh, I was fairly Sort of compliant, I think, of yeah. uh, those early years. But, you know, adversity kind of breeds things in you where mm. you kind of get a little like, how am I going to get myself out of this? So one of the first things was the boy that I met in university had to go back to Singapore. And so the first job I learned to get me into Singapore was a startup. Would you believe yeah, it? Yeah, right. My first encounter. Of this thing called a startup, and by the time I landed in Singapore and started the job, the psychologist that they got left, the senior, right, and the number two, so their content developers and their delivery persons left. Comes me fresh out of university. Wow. <laughs> And I think I just didn't think anything about it. I was like, well, I've got a job. Apparently they need some products (laughs) made and delivered. (laughs) And so I just invented, Um, I just made it happen. Products, trainings, deliveries. I even created a little Excel scoring thing that produced reports to hundreds of clients uh, through this little Excel formula. Right. Uh, So I think I've always had an entrepreneurial bent. I can't help it. But it's a really another thing when you actually have to use that for yourself. And that's, yeah, that was hard when you kind of go self-employed.
1: Okay. Really so hard. So you, you had to take that mm. leap at some point. It actually came out of quite a difficult mm. circumstance in your life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So at this point in time, it's 2009 and I am in Singapore. And you know, I have young young kids. They're really, really young. Um, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. You know. uh, You know, my skin is as dry as you know. There are bags under my eyes. There's this photo that that I have holding one baby and there's another one beside me, and I'm smiling and I'm looking and I'm thinking, man, you look horrible. (laughs) You have no idea. Then I get pregnant and I was at that point in time finishing up my master's, so I did a master's in clinical psychology with the babies in tow and there is a job waiting for me. Then I fall pregnant and I'm like, well, um, I'm going to be a mom again, so I guess I'll resign. And so I did. And we were living in Singapore at that time, and I was not really familiar with the medical system. And so my first medical appointment really was too late into the, the, the pregnancy. And I discovered that I actually had miscarried. Oh, and I had sorry. a fairly traumatic miscarriage experience in a foreign medical system. Okay, uh, There were no markers to help me to see when it was an emergency or not. Right. And I actually went to church. Um, I'm a minister's wife, and... I'm just, it's a nightmare, a medical nightmare in church. Someone picks me up and says, you need to go to the hospital. So that all, you know, was very, very sad. But what it meant was, I don't have a job. Yeah. (laughs) And so I'm going, what am I going to do? Uh, I've resigned, right? And I think, well, I actually had this idea in my 20s that um, one day I'd really love to have a company called DCPI. And I say, well, okay, I might as well register that. Yeah. And I think to myself, DCPI means, uh, it was a really absurd name, development, consulting, psychological, I don't even know what the I was. Maybe in- international, yeah. I think. I think I had some global aspirations. We'll make up the I. Yeah. <laughs> and so I registered myself as a sole trader in Singapore. And you know what's the phrase that my husband and I, we say, which is kind of less used these days. And I go, desperation breeds greatness, Josh. Desperation <laughs> breeds greatness. I'm just going to go in this direction. Yeah. And so I start this business, which at the time, the first gig we got was to run cognitive assessments in the forensic system, uh, young offenders.
1: Right. So these are people in the criminal system, the juvenile oh. justice system in Singapore.
0: Mm-hmm. so you're now
1: on your own so to speak you're self-employed and off the back of all of those things in your childhood the desire to innovate and do new fresh things and, and an environment that encourages safety yeah. and and all of that now landed and here you are with your own with your own business yeah i have a friend who talks about entrepreneurs, and that basically we all have something wrong with us. His theory is, he calls it the brain dead gene. He goes, why? Why would a sensible person who could go and get a nice safe job, go and do something mad, take all this risk? Uh, The beauty of it is that that's where all the new jobs, all the new economy, all the creativity, all the improvements are happening with Mm. these crazy people. Mm. So you joined us. You joined the crazy people. Well, there you go. All right. So what was next?
0: Well, I guess kind of another um, family crisis moment, really. So 2009, I set that up. I got a friend to partner with me and do a little bit of that work as well. Uh, But my kids weren't thriving in Singapore. And also my husband's job at the time was coming to an end. And the Australian system, by 2011, required all psychologists to come under a professional board. And I'm in Singapore at this stage and someone hands me this wad of documents and says, you better read this. And I'm reading it and I'm realizing, oh my gosh, I could lose my registration as a psychologist from home yeah. if we don't go back. So we put all of this together and very quickly we we come back to Australia in 2011 My husband is left in Singapore to finish his work over there, and I come with two little kids, right? And it's, again, desperation breeds greatness. (laughs) what am I going to do? If I got to get a job with someone, I can't work the hours to to be a single mom, essentially. So I discover that there's this thing called um, Soul Trader in Australia, and I land up in a private practice situation, right? Uh, that didn't last for very long for various reasons. And by 2013, I had to make some plans to continue to earn an income outside of someone else's practice. And I've got this journal, kid you not, I still have it, where I write down all my fears right. how this is not going to work. This is a really dumb idea, but I'm pretty desperate. <laughs> what am I going to do? So in 2013, I started trading under my name, uh, in a room, agonizing over Eftipos machines and furniture, <laughs> actually got turned away by my bank to give me an Eftipos machine. Would you believe it? Yes. I oh, know I do believe it. I've seen that before. Yes. Yeah. And I think at that point, I attend a seminar and the guy says to the room, how many of you own a business? And I thought, oh, well, I've registered as a sole trader. So I guess I'll put my hand up yes I own a business and then he says of those who've put up their hands how many of you actually have staff or employees and like the vast majority of hands go down he says you are self-employed you still have a job I'm like oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> right so the penny dropped that you probably didn't own a business you probably just owned a job that's it now two things happened from that point number one I realize I'm not the best boss of me that's some of the burnout stuff wow Right? Okay. I come out of that thinking, okay, if I really just have a job, if I don't bring more people on, I'm not being a good boss of me. I've got kids. I have a clinical load. This is not great. I've got to replicate this.
1: Yeah. You said that you wrote down a list of your fears. Hmm. Do it a lot. What a fascinating thing to do. <laughs> because don't we try and hide from them, shove them under the carpet, ignore them? Yeah. you, you know, You're embracing them.
0: Oh, 100%. Um, I infuse that into my business with my team as well. You stare it down. Your fears and the messages of I'm a fake, you stare it down annually and you build a process around it. Because one of
1: one of two things happens, and correct me if I'm wrong, you, you write the fear down and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, that's not very scary. That's, yes. that's rubbish. So that's rumbling around the back of my head and doesn't need to be, so that one's mm. gone. Or you go... That is a legitimate concern, and I'm going to come up with a way to deal with that.
0: Absolutely. So if you have a reflective practice that's daily, and um, so I do it annually every year, and then quarterly on my retreats. But if you have a a reflective practice daily and you're actually cataloging your wins and the things you're actually grateful for, then some of these fears get put into a context that says, oh, well, that's actually not really true Mm. or that's really not as scary as it seems to be, right? So an example would be that I have a fear of being misunderstood, like what I will say will be taken out of context. Okay, yeah. um, so, you know, there was a time when I wouldn't do anything that was recorded, <laughs> nothing, right? And so, you know, that's kind of a thing that if you do a daily reflective practice on and you, you beat a test these things, you realize, oh, actually, that's, that was okay. I, don't, I won't say dumb things no. <laughs> most of the time, you know, they're pretty okay. Yeah. And nobody is going to hunt me down for that inaccuracy. But then there are the fears that you reflect and you reflect and you reflect and they're a little bit more profound because they've got to do with a sense of who you think you are. Mm. Those are the things I say to my team and to myself on my annual growth plan. So I do one for myself, for the family and the business. They're the ones you say, I'm going to face you. So about a year or two ago, and this is really self-revealing now, but I've said it to a lot of people. Um, when you're a business owner and you're a psychologist, you know, have you ever read that book, The E-Myth? I have. Yeah. Michael Gerber. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bit of a grief, right, when you go from a technician to a leader because you leave your craft. You have to drop it. Yeah. Yeah. And you feel like as a psychologist, you feel really guilty about that. Right. And then you start to feel like a phony because, <laughs> you know, you're not doing the clinical work anymore. You're leading now. And so I had these big messages for myself a year or two ago, which says, you've let the profession down. Man, try wearing that on your (laughs) shoulders. (laughs) And I had to stare that down and say, okay, what's the evidence for this? Okay, yes, I know things about burnout. I know this, 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 this. I had to identify two critical areas that were really, really impacting me. And for that year, all professional development events and reading was only in those areas. It's like going to the gym, right? And I can absolutely tell you by the end of the year, I kicked that in the butt, you know why? I realized that, oh, I do know this stuff and I'm using it in every space of my life. I may not be doing it a lot as a psychologist, but I'm supervising others. I have friends. I have, you know. You're helping people on this podcast right now with your knowledge. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so potentially you were helping one-on-one. Now you're helping multiples. Yeah. You're potentially helping more people. Yeah, I'd like to think so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're being modest, but I'm sure you are. So... We were talking about 2011 and kicking off and the realisation that you needed to scale. Well, we're we're Mm. 10 years down the track now. My goodness. (laughs) And you've got a thriving centre with about 10 staff. Tell us about that growth journey.
0: Mm. So between the years of um, 2011 and 2014, I really realised that I need to take myself out of it. I don't know what it's like for you, James, but... I stunt my own growth when I have to talk about me and sell me. That's why I was really anxious about today. (laughs) And the name Valerie Ling needed to come out of the business. It just didn't represent who I was. And so I registered a company and called it the Center for Effective Living. And guess what? It was just me. And I felt like such a fake. People would ask me, sir, what's your business? Center for Effective Living. Oh, yes. And I had one room and one human being, me. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a center. (laughs) And for years, I was embarrassed about that name. Um, But it was a vision. It's not just about illness. It's about restoring people to the dignity of living their full lives. Right. And if I'm going to do this in any way or form without me burning out myself, which is the realization, mm. I need help. I need to bring others. And the best way I know how to do that is to remove my name and to make it something that's more than me. So I registered that and brought some people on. Yeah. So that's absolutely going down Michael Gerber's emyth process of... Uh... Didn't know it, though. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't really into reading business books then. Yeah, <laughs> I was still a mum, Remember that? Yeah. Just a mum trying to do pickups and drop-offs, do my work, not burn out as well, and thinking, okay, I need help. So tell me how you came up with
1: the name for your business.
0: I was sitting in a cafe with a really lovely friend who was still um, an inspiration to me, and we were talking about burnout, right, um, particularly at that time we were looking at burnout in the clergy space and then I was looking at it from a mental health perspective. I'm like, well, it's not just clergy, you know, people in general are are suffering from this. And for me, there's a real... I think we suffer from a sense of not giving dignity to suffering, you know, that... Um, there's, there's a redemptive space in that when you suffer, that you grow, you move. And I was like saying to him, you know, like every place that I turn to is like, uh, you know, like psychologist this and, you know, <laughs> illness that. I said, wouldn't it be great if somebody could build a center for effective living? It just brings the dignity of saying, you know, you're, you, you get to live a life though it's hard and there's suffering and pain that is effective because you are being authentic to yourself, um, you're growing and you're doing the best that you can. And I'm like, I, I was so sure that somebody would have had that name in Australia. And so I <laughs> thought, oh, yeah, wouldn't it be great? Center for Effective Living is like this collective a group of people with the same philosophy that brings dignity to suffering. And so I go home and I think, oh, well, let's just Google it. <laughs> Nobody had the name. yeah, And I register it. and that became the name uh, that is till today
1: i talk to business owners every day about their marketing and the consistent feedback is that they feel lost in the digital marketing world usually they've got someone to have a go at some seo google ads or social media but they often don't know what work is even being done and they can't see any results this is where our team and i can help with our digital marketing playbook Over the past 10 years we've designed a process to help you achieve your business goals by speaking to the right people at the right time with the right message. We analyse your competitors, create the unique voice you should use in the marketplace, map out your customers path to purchase and then create expert search, social media and nurture strategies to attract the right people to your business. This is all underpinned by our belief that the best digital marketing puts people first If you need help to get your marketing on the straight and narrow, why not drop us a line at theonlineco.net. You can have a quick chat to one of our team to see how we can best support you in growing your business. So your first hire is always a big deal. She's still with me. Oh, my my (laughs) first hire is still with us too. I'm very grateful for her.
0: Yeah. Uh, How did you go about that? Oh gosh, I'm almost embarrassed to say it, right? But it's like, let's put an ad. Um, You know, back then it was like Gumtree and (laughs) I don't even know what I used. I might have used the Psych Classifieds. And James, all I thought is I need to like carve out some of my work and give it to someone else. Thankfully, she's terrific. Terrific, right? And so she answers the ad and I'm with my kids in... I don't know Big W or Kmart they were like running off looking at toys and I'm on the phone doing like an interview. <laughs> yeah. So it came off the back of an ad? You yeah. hired a stranger? I did. Oh my gosh when you say that now I think oh my goodness what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well it's scary
1: yeah. Mm. I, I didn't hire a stranger I mm. hired somebody who I knew and I knew I could trust uh, but she had no experience mm. so then I had to train her. I, I went down a different path there. Mm. All right, so have you made any hiring mistakes?
0: Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we all? <laughs> we have. You know, I can't remember who said this, but I really respect it. It might be a Gary V thing, I think. Hiring mistakes aren't that I hired the wrong people. It's on me.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: yeah. I didn't have the right view of my vision into a role. Okay. In other words, what I've really learned now is to hire for that and to know who it is that's going to thrive in this role. That's my big turning point. You need to pick people who are going to thrive in this role, right? So, yeah, I would say that it was a real journey, but, you know, those early days was like heartache. I've done something wrong. Now someone doesn't have a job. People don't realize that this is how, you know, you actually do think as a business owner, you can't yeah. say that to others. But those days, James, when I used to think of, oh, my gosh, meals on tables, you know, in someone else's home, I just ripped that off. Yeah. <laughs> I'm such a bad person. <laughs> and then you hang on longer than you should. And, and and it's probably true that whilst it hurts you and your business
1: to keep them, you're possibly hurting them too in a role that doesn't fit them.
0: Well, that's absolutely the turning point too of that message is that, you know what, you have a responsibility when you're an employer to release people into the next better role.
1: Yeah, Some, soon. there's
0: something better Quaker. for them. Yeah. yeah. Now, in that process, you bring people
1: on, you need to get more people through the door, you need to have more customers. Uh-huh. We call well, them clients clients okay clients. Yeah. good what does
0: marketing look like for you ah well <laughs> i bought myself a laser printer <laughs> i still remember this that's hilarious and i think to myself i guess i should just print a couple of newsletters and i did i'm so embarrassed to say this letterbox drops oh. with my children on their bikes that's good for fitness Man, <laughs> and we are Vista printing. But then I learn, oh, let's go to, you know, the other, let's build some relationships. And okay. I say, hey, <laughs> Sorry, you know? how did the letterbox drops go? Who knows? I didn't even do a return of investment analysis. Okay, so you so might have got know, business, yeah. you might not, you don't oh, know. Well, yeah, I could have. I doubt it. Okay. <laughs> Most people just take that stuff and throw it in the bin. So... In 2017, I have a really horrible experience in my business and I probably can't share it here, but, okay. you know, it was not good. And I'm walking and I'm on the phone with my best friend and, like, I'm trapped. I never wanted this. <laughs> you know, like, This is no – I just wanted to, like, palm off some work to other people and just have that little space for myself so I wasn't burning out. I could be with my family. I never wanted this. I have got to make a decision. Close shop or keep going. My exact words to her. And she says, listen, I've heard you say this before. So I sign up for my first business coaching in a group situation. And this person who is now a very dear friend gets us to write down this thing, I still have it. And she says, what's your revenue now? Write it down. I'm like, oh, okay. And <laughs> <laughs> where do you want to be? I don't want to be. <laughs> like, Get me out of this right now. Yeah. And I write it down. I just think, okay, here's the revenue. This will be the revenue I want to get. And that is what it is today. And this coach teaches me that marketing is messaging. It's communicating more of your intent to more people than just the one that's sitting there. Yeah. Right. And it takes a lot of cogs in my head to accept that. And this is the time now where digital marketing is starting to come up. So 2018, I sign up with my business coach and my dear friend. And she's like, you got to get on social media right now. (laughs) (laughs) She's like 90 day challenge, all of you, every day, Facebook lives. I'm like, good grief got to be kidding me. And I'm not a girly girl. It's not about the makeup and all of that. It's the whole thing of being misunderstood. Someone's going to hunt me down because I have recorded something that's inaccurate. You know, people are going to think I'm full of myself. Like who wants to sit and watch something about you, right? So I enter digital marketing very reluctant, very scared, but very compliant because my coach said it. You've been told. <laughs> yeah. And um, of course, you're really just grateful that your friends and family like your page. So. <laughs> <laughs> Don't underestimate that. You have to start somewhere and you're getting your friends and family to like your page. Yeah. You know? Now, at that time, interestingly, the business coach, and I'm really grateful for her for pushing this. She tells me that I have a thing with stories. And so she makes me have two social media (laughs) presents. One was for the business Center for Effective Living and one is Valerie Ling. Yeah. Right. And so these two things have to go in parallel now. And it's been the hardest thing to straddle. It's really been difficult because I wanted to give up the Valerie thing numerous times. And it was her that also says, do the doctor burnout thing. I'm like, oh, really? It's so tacky.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so you did Facebook Live
0: mm-hmm. every day for ninety days. Yep, I uh, desensitized by day ninety. I'm no longer needing to have makeup or whatever. You know, I could pull over. I, could, you know, just. I think I just discovered that it just provides an anchor spot for some people. It's messages of hope, encouragement. A lot of times, it's people just having these horrible thoughts in their head have a moment where someone says, "Hey." Me too, or it's okay. Yeah. Here's a couple of pointers or directions you can go. So that 90-day experiment really did wonders, I think, and the repurpose of the content yeah. is, <laughs> is great. Right. So tell us about repurposing content. That's something that you do. <laughs> yeah, we call it the sausage machine in the practice.
1: The sausage machine.
0: I I'm going to tell
1: my social media team that. They'll probably quite like that.
0: The sausage machine is basically what it means is that we take content and we snip it to the different platforms and I use the word embarrassed a lot in this podcast. This is really interesting. I'm going to need to journal about this. Yeah. <laughs> I get really embarrassed when people say to me, oh my gosh, you're in social media all the time. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's a whole team effort. And it's the most amazing thing to see your teammates write things. We do a blog. Yeah. From there, they submit quotes. Yeah. We build things from the one blog article into print, and to marketing. And the most recent blogs they've had the courage to use their own voice. That's really hard for psychologists. They're telling their stories now. Yes. And it's so moving.
1: Yeah. Right. The idea that you write a blog, post it to your Facebook account once, and that's the end of it, is really not utilising that content very well at all. You really should be using it in multiple different ways, and that's what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And so you consider your social media strategy one of your keys to your growth?
0: Yeah, absolutely. We have targets for that. Look, we're amateurs, but we have targets for reach. And um, I regularly post into the team Facebook group, what our growth numbers are, what the stats are in terms of the return of investment, like where our referrals are coming from. And we've certainly seen the difference. So as an aside, we were during COVID very blessed because of that. Mm. Um, As psychologists during COVID, the Medicare system went into flux. Um, Not a lot of psych businesses survived because they panicked or, you know, it was very difficult um, during the ambiguity of what we could claim or could not claim over telehealth uh. um, and things like that. So a lot of the uh, people's revenue income was really hit. And, and that is also like because if you're heavily reliant on referrals from doctors who were burning out during the pandemic, right? You're exhausted. Yeah. yeah. So I think our social media presence brought messages of hope. It brought in the people that needed help because we took a strategy that says we're just going to put out content that says to people, hang on, hang on, we will get through this. Here are some little things that you can do. Here are some free resources, etc." And that helped to bring in, I guess, income during the time that the Medicare stream was in flux. We had other ways of, of getting revenue in Um in March, when all of the lockdown happened uh, 2020, I actually gathered the whole team over Zoom. This is very sad picture of all of us, <laughs> you know, <laughs> full attendance. And I go, here's what the income looks like, right? If we are dependent on Medicare, we will be closed in two months. Guys, And just being transparent.
1: Yeah. A lot of businesses had those conversations. Yeah. yeah. So
0: what are we going to do? So we had a conversation about how we would manage that as a team, but then we had to innovate. The horrible word that I really disliked was pivot. (laughs) And because we had a social media presence, a lot of our pivoting happened in that space in those unclear months. And you've grown off the back of that pivot? I just used the dirty word. We absolutely did because we realized that we could do things that we never thought were possible before. And I think it really freed up the team now. A lot of them don't want to just do work in their rooms anymore. They want to come out and play. (laughs) You know, Ah. some of them during this period have written amazing programs and thinking about what they can do in the webinar space and, you know, things like that.
1: Okay, it's wonderful. I, I want to ask you as a psychologist what you do for staff development. How is it that you develop your people? I'm sure you
0: have a unique perspective on that. Yeah, look, it's a hybrid of a lot of input of coaching and reading and the burnout prevention. So for me, it's being authentic to that. We have the practice 12-month plan, which includes all the pillars of our business, but also includes what are we going to do for fun, for personal development and for connection. From there, we build 90-day plans for the practice. So quarterly goals. And from there, individuals build a 90-day plan with me. So I sit down with them and on that 90 day plan, there's talks about what's your fear. That's like your training and development, one goal for the year. What is it that you absolutely love? What's your joy? That's the other training and development goal you put on. And then we, we talk about what brings joy for them in their work. And we put that on their 90 day plan. We increase that. So that's the thing about burnout in work. You have to increase meaning and joy. And we make sure that's there. And then we check in, I guess, about what's draining you. So it could be time management or it could be my unrealistic expectations. Right. And so we problem solve that. And they meet with me fortnightly, 30 minutes, really short to review their 90 day plans. How are you tracking? And it gives me great feedback as well. And we also have, uh, I call it the ship morale's officer. (laughs) (laughs) That's my practice manager. And she briefs me on how the team going, what she picking up from the team, what do they need? And that filters into our fun things. We're going axe throwing apparently next quarter. Oh, wow. For Christmas, she told me I wanted to do the whole, yes, we made it. Let's go party, (laughs) everybody. And she said to me, actually, Valerie, they just... Want something quiet. They just want to be in the practice. I'm, like, I'm willing to spend money. Like, that's cool. <laughs> you know, it says now they just want to come back home. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. They want to have somewhere quiet and they want to bring food and share. I'm like, okay, well, let's do that.
1: Yeah, yeah. lovely. Mm. Okay, so it's 2021. You clearly are a visionary and you think in the future. What's 2031 look
0: like? Oh, I hope to be international. (laughs) (laughs) I hope my husband and I are still alive. (laughs) Um, We'd love to have an international, um, I guess I'll use the word ministry because he's a pastor. Mm. Um, Our kids will hopefully all be grown up by then. And Josh and I would love to give back, I think. We hope to not have to earn income by then we hope that everything that we do now is kind of a reverse pay it forward if you like which says that we can actually give of our time and encourage uh, people around the world in our passion interests yeah Um, I love speaking I love training um, and, and Josh loves being a pastor that's what we'd love to be doing yeah
1: Sounds fantastic. So essentially you're helping people now and in 10 years you'd like to be helping an awful lot more people.
0: Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And I would love, I would absolutely love every single person who has worked in the Centre for Effective Living to carry that little vision in them that we give back, we pay it forward. We don't get trapped in what's impossible, we constantly think in what's possible. That was
1: Valerie Ling. You can find out more about her work at ValerieLing.com. And her last name is spelled L-I-N-G. She and her team of psychologists work at the Centre for Effective Living in Sydney. And you can learn more about that by heading to EffectiveLiving.com.au. And she also has her own podcast called Dr. Burnout. Now, Jess, there's lots of great marketing principles there. There was, wasn't there? I reckon... I would like to hear more about the sausage machine.
2: Oh, me too. Now, the sausage <laughs> machine—that was—that is one takeaway that I think, no matter who is listening, no matter what point you are at in business, that it's a really good takeaway for everybody. So, effectively, what Valerie is saying is that she'll create one piece of content. And so it might be a blog article, and the sausage machine principle is that she'll turn that one piece of content into multiple pieces of content by chopping it up and breaking it down and using it in a lot of different ways so she mentioned that she puts her content in a format that it can be used both in digital and in print yes which is just fantastic you know her target market will receive marketing in both of those forms Yeah. so for her to create that blog chop it down, use it as different social media posts, use it as quotes she can do short videos on, she can use it in different elements and aspects of her website, she can put that into pamphlets and she might do some letterbox drops again, although (laughs) I'd love to get your thoughts on the uh, the pamphlets and the letterbox drops. I'd love
1: to talk about the letterbox drops, but I I think perhaps people... Are discouraged from social media by the amount of work involved. And if you have to write an article and it takes two hours or something, you write that blog and then you post it, and you know it gets one comment and three likes, and you think, well, that's a waste of time. Whereas potentially within that blog is ten posts, that's right. three videos, two emails. Like yeah. there could be two dozen pieces of content from yeah. that one blog. It'll be found on Google. There's there's all those things. But yes, your question about pamphlets. Now, Valerie had a bit of a laugh at herself because she didn't know if it worked or whatnot. not. And, and I guess the obvious question is, is pamphlets a good idea? And, and probably in her case, it, it probably wasn't. Um, but what I do want to say is that I would prefer someone to do a pamphlet drop than do nothing. Because mm, what you're choosing is, do I say something my potential target market, or do I choose silence? And saying something's always better than silence. Saying nothing, right? Yeah, well,
2: I mean, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, right? (laughs)
1: Exactly. So, and there's really something to be said about getting started, taking a step and moving. And it's possible that the first steps are failure. And and Phil Callaghan last week talked about that as well. When he first launched his website, it didn't work very well. But that was a first step and it enabled him to take a second step and a third step. And really Valerie's just taken that first step, probably wasn't the right one, but then she's taken the, the ongoing steps.
2: Yeah, and that first step is the important one. Right or wrong, it's yeah, the important one. Moving. Yeah, get moving, do something, say yeah. something, yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, then what she's done is she's started to get strategic about it and she's done things like the 90-day challenge with Facebook Lives, yeah, yeah. every day for 90 days. Yeah. And the 90-day plan, as well as the 12-month goals. And that 90-day principle is really important because our businesses revolve in 90-day cycles. So we need to set goals and plans for 90 days, as well as for 12 months. So then you end up with four quarters. And I think this is something that we cover in the playbook. When we set out a 12-month rollout plan, we break it into four quarters. And then we've got clear milestones for marketing across an entire year and that takes marketing out of the oh, I think I'll do something or I- I'm having a go at something to no we're strategically pursuing something and we're taking those steps and we're adjusting measuring adjusting again creating new hypotheses adjusting again and refining over the course of that year
2: yeah often people think of marketing as set and forget and it really isn't. No. It just isn't. It can't be. Imagine if Valerie had just done that one letterbox drop and then never did anything ever yeah, again. there's marketing for my business. Yeah, done. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. It
1: just won't work. Got to keep moving. I guess the complexity with marketing is you're talking to people. Mm-hmm. People are complicated. <laughs> people respond <laughs> yeah. in unexpected ways. Uh, but typically with marketing, there's, there's all sorts of benefits come out of it that you don't expect. All sorts of side things happen just by being... Being there, being present, by being and, present, yeah, and and people hearing you, mm-hmm. yeah. So next week's episode, you're going to hear part two of our interview with Valerie. Please don't miss it. This one is really uh, powerful and really close to my heart. We're going to dive into her expertise in burnout treatment and prevention. I, I just think this is a really important message for entrepreneurs. Uh, burnout, something I've suffered with, and many of my friends and loved ones have as well. And I would love to think that our podcast could prevent people suffering the way I have, in the way Valerie has, and if we could prevent one person, if that one person is you, or that one person is a friend, uh, I think we would have really done something meaningful with the podcast. So she's going to give very practical and encouraging advice, and I think it's going to be really helpful for you or a loved one who you think could be helped by it. This episode of Getting to the Heart of Business was brought to you by The Online Co, produced by Claire Bruce, music by Harry Parnwell. You can find us at theonlineco.net. Please feel free to share this episode with somebody who might benefit from it. And please come and say hello in our Facebook group, Getting to the Heart of Business community.